So we'll read 31 through 38, John 13. So when he, Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. And if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you, and you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. And by this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay your life down for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. If you would, keep your finger, finger in John 13 and go to Matthew chapter 13 for a moment. We're going to read something in Matthew from Christ. The world is full of that which is false. And this includes sometimes things that are connected in and around the church. It is, we know in our culture, and this reality is going to remain that way until Christ returns and sets up His kingdom in the millennium. Until then, there's a reality that is happening in and around us. It happens inside the church and outside in the world as well. And so Jesus speaks about that. And what we will begin to see this morning is Christ is going to share with us how do you identify those who are in the kingdom and those who aren't. And so we will see some of those things. So Matthew 13, 24. So we put another parable before them saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then what do you want us, do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let them both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Well, this kind of blows their mind a little bit. They kind of don't know what to do. What is the meaning of this? And so now look in 36. So then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the meaning of the weeds of the field. And he answered, the one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. Who's the Son of Man? Who do we know the Son of Man to be? Jesus is the Son of Man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. Those are the followers of Christ. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sold them is the devil. The harvest is at the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. And just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire... So will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. What I want to begin to set forth for us, and we will begin to see in the days ahead, is that we are living in a world that is a Matthew 13 world. In the world now are growing up those like us. We love Jesus. We think Jesus is great. We love the Word. We're committed to the church. We're committed to the Great Commission. And yet growing up around us, in and around us, are are those whose father is the enemy. 
And his aim is to do whatever he can do to tear down the kingdom of God. And so this reality that we live in is going to continue to be the case until Christ returns. And so how do you notice or differentiate and see those that are wheat and those that are weeds? How, How do you know that? Is there a way to do that? And what Christ is setting forth as we started two weeks ago after he had washed their feet and Judas left the room, Christ sets forth some identifying marks of those who are wheat, who are, the, who are or those who are connected to the kingdom of God. And then those who don't embrace these things, you can know that this is not the case with them. So the children of the Son long for Jesus. They love Jesus. They long for heaven. They love one another. They love the glory of God. Those that are children of the evil one, they long for self. They mock Christ. They long for things of the world. And there's no interest in the glory of Christ to be established in the world. And so we're going to begin to see a second aspect of that today. But we're going to, I want to remind us of one we've already talked about. We're going to kind of look at it in a different angle. So I want to talk, first of all, going back to what we looked at a couple of weeks ago about the glory of God. Those, if you want to know those, an identifying mark of those who, who love Jesus, they long for the glory of God. They love the glory of God. They love every aspect of the nature and the character of God. So, so look there in verse 31 and 32 with me. So Judas has left the room. Just previous to that, um, it says that the devil entered Judas. He went out uh, to begin the betrayal. And so when he went out, he now turns to the eleven and says, He says to them, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. And if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. So here's here's the text. Here's the meaning. The long-awaited hour from Genesis chapter 3 that one would come to crush Satan was present. All through Christ's ministry, they tried to arrest him. They tried to push him over a cliff. They tried to kill him, and he just walked through them. Why? Because his hour was not present. But now the hour is present. And in this hour, he will go and lay his life down on the cross. And as he lays his life down on the cross, he will glorify the Father, because this is the fulfillment of the Father's plan to bring salvation through Christ. And then the Father will glorify Himself in Christ. So the Father gets great glory in the cross. Jesus gets the greatest glory in the cross. And He shares with them, and He's wanting them to know, men, your life must be marked by a passionate pursuit and love of the glory of who I am. And they would come in a couple of days, and for the remainder of their days, they would come to know in the resurrection, the deep significance of the death of Jesus and why that was so important. Real life would be found in the death of the Son of God. Now, you wouldn't know this. It's going to take us several months to get there, but eventually we're going to get there where they come to arrest Jesus. And you remember what they all do? What every one of them do? They run away and they flee. So in just a few hours, they're not going to look like a group of men that are like, we're going to live for the glory of God. We get who Jesus is. He's our passion. We're standing here. Peter, we just read, made this bold claim. Lord, I'm willing to die for you. And Peter will show in just a few hours that he's not willing to die for the Lord. But I do want to say this, and I love this about our God is that all of us probably in our spiritual life have made some pretty bold claims of what we wouldn't do, what we wouldn't compromise in, and we have done that. See, our God is a restoring God. And every one of these men who flee, they will be entrusted with the gospel. And we are sitting in this room today, by the way, because these 11 men were restored, commissioned, entrusted with the gospel And it began to go, and we're here because of a direct descendant of this message of the Great Commission. So, again, you wouldn't know it in a few hours, but they do live for the rest of their lives for the glory of God. Let me share a few things with you about them. Andrew, the apostle, 
went north of Israel into Ukraine and Russia. Eventually, he traveled over to southern Greece, um, where one account in church tradition tells us that he led the wife of a Roman governor to Christ. He was so, the husband was so upset about that that he asked her to recant. She would not recant. And so he took Andrew and put him on a cross that was like an X. You may have seen it before. And tied him up there to hang him up there a little bit longer to secure him. And, and tradition tells us that for two days, Andrew hung on this cross. And every time somebody passed by, he would implore them to come to faith in Christ, to believe in Christ. Thomas was active in the east part of Syria and took the gospel as far as India. In India today, near an airport in Chennai, India, you can go there. There's a small hill that tradition tells us that that's where Thomas is buried. What's interesting about Thomas is, if you remember in the upper room, he's like, I won't believe unless I can touch the side where the spear was. It's interesting about him that they took a spear and rammed it through Thomas to kill him. Matthew, the tax collector, he went into Persia and Ethiopia, Ethiopia taking the gospel. And it is also believed that he was stabbed to death in Ethiopia. I share that this morning with us for this reason. Again, a little bit later, it's not going to look like these men are willing to live for the glory of God that Christ is talking about. But they will. Every one of them will die as their Lord did, except for John. He's the only one who died of natural causes. They will live for His glory, and they will give their life. Why? Why are you here this morning? Why is our great passion at nighttime, in the middle of the night, in the morning, and during the day, to live for the glory of God, particularly in a culture like ours, to stand out because of, 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 of our love for who He is? Why do we do that? We, ha- we do that because we have found a treasure that you cannot find except in Christ. And our lives become this, this testimony to a parable that Jesus gave. Just a one-sentence parable. You'll, f- you'll be familiar with it. Matthew 13, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and he covered it up, and then in his joy he went away and he sold everything that he had, and he bought that field because he knew that he had found a treasure that was far beyond anything that the earth could offer him. And so when he turns, Jesus, on that night, and he turns to the eleven, and he looks at them in the room, and he, Judas is gone, he lets them know, listen, man, I am the long-awaited moment of my glory, and the Father's glory is here. I'm going to the cross, and I will die. And so this treasure has come to us at the highest cost, the life of Jesus. And so therefore, even for us, we should not ever assume that there's not going to be any kind of cost to us in our lives as well. So I want you to go with me to 33 now, and let's look at the second thing. I want to talk about the leaving of Jesus. So there's an issue in the room. There's an issue in the life of the 11 that is about to come They're not really ready for it. They can't really fully comprehend it. And so Jesus is going to get them ready for what is about to come. So let's read 33 again. So my children, I will be with you only a little longer. And you will look for me. And just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. There was a new time coming. It was, going to be, it was going to rock these men's world. If you'll remember, Christ spent a whole night in prayer in Luke 6, 12, seeking the Father. When He came down from the mountain, there were already a bunch of followers. He chose 12 out after this night of prayer to be followers. And so here they are. Judas, the son of perdition, has bet- he's already agreed to betray Christ. He's He's been possessed by Satan. He's left the room. He's gone. But here are these 11. And they are about to have their world rocked. Now I, want you to, I want you to think about this with me. Can you just imagine with me for a moment what it must have been like to live with Jesus for three straight years, day in and day out, laughing with Him, watching Him cast out demons, watching Him heal people, You were present when he raised children and he raised Lazarus from the dead. You have seen 
incredible things. And for three years of your life, you left your occupation, you left your family, you left your hopes for the future, whatever you thought that was, and you followed him. And now, three years into this, he's like, hey, um, I'm getting out of here. And I'm not going to be around here anymore. And they begin to think about that, and they're so troubled by it, and we'll get there next week. And you, you have to understand this. John 14, verse 1, Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. What are they troubled over? They're troubled over he's about to go. And they're trying to process, what am I going to do about what he's telling me that he's going to be gone? And so again, these guys have given up so much to follow him. And now he would be leaving. He will tell them in John 16, verse 7, he says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I don't go away, the Helper will not come. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now just, just for a moment, we, again, we've spent our whole life on the other side of this. They are experiencing this in the moment. Three years of life with Jesus, and he's like, I'm going to go away, and you're not going to be able to find me anymore. I'm not, I'm not going to be here. I'm going to be gone. And they're, again, they're trying to process this in the moment. And so he tells them, he calls them something. He calls them little children. Not as a derogatory term. In the Greek, this word means this. It's a child who doesn't fully understand things and needs a father to step in and to take care of some things for the child so that they can have their needs met. And so the only time in the four Gospels, Jesus uses the word little children is right here and so i want you to see this that as he as he talks about this he's speaking in the tenderness of a family a father dealing with children to help them understand something that is really really difficult for them to understand in the moment john will later use this word seven times in first john but it's the only time this is used in the Gospels. And I imagine that the 11 are like, okay, he's never talked to us like that before. And there's a tenderness that's there. And I want you to see this. There's a tenderness that he expresses to the 11 because he knows that their hearts are troubled. And he knows that this is going to be a process for them to kind of understand that it's good for Jesus to go away and for them not to be able to find him. And secondly, under this, he, the tenderness is connected in getting them ready for the change. And so there's a tenderness in regard to family and his care for them, but it's also to get them ready for the change. There's a great little instance that Mark writes about in, in Mark 1, 35 through 37. One morning, Jesus got up really early and he went off by himself to pray. The, the apostles kind of get up and they wake up and all the people come and they're like where's Jesus and and they're looking around and so everybody goes out the 11 they go out and they finally find Jesus and they're like Peter's like Lord everybody's been looking for you where have you been and they were able to find him they're not gonna be able to find him anymore he's telling them and sharing with them in this moment that they are not going to be able to have an instance like that again. He is going to go away, and when he goes away in this moment, it is going to be a permanent going away in a sense that they're not going to be able to physically be able to find him anymore. And I want to ask you to give me a little bit of leeway just for a moment. You have to always be careful with speculation, but I want to speculate for a second. These are very unique men. As a matter of fact, if you'll remember in Revelation 21, their names are going to be in the new city. They're going to be written in the new city. These are really important men. And I just thought this week, because they had such a unique experience, they lived with Jesus physically for three years, and then he left, and then they had to learn to live with him gone and being indwelt by the Spirit. I wondered when Peter was crucified upside down and I wondered when Paul had his head cut off by Nero in Rome I wondered what that reunion was like when they were in the presence of Jesus again 
I wonder what it was like for Peter to walk up and to embrace his Lord after living for his glory for all of his days after Christ left. So he tenderly lets them know, listen, I'm leaving. And I want you to know this is going to be okay. Everything's going to be all right. So on this last night together, Jesus expresses in great tenderness how he feels about these men. And he shares with them his heart. Paul learned this as well. He wrote to the church in Thessalonica these words in 1 Thessalonians 2, 7. He said, but we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. And so, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. We wanted to share our own love with you because you had become very dear to us. So get the context, because now we're going to look at the next marker. Judas is gone. Men, my glory, the Father's glory is about to be revealed in the cross. I also got to tell you this and get you ready. You're my little children. I love you and I want to help you understand something. Um, In a little while, I'm going to be leaving you and you're not going to be able to follow me where I'm going. You're not going to be able to find me. But while I am gone, I want you to live in, in this kind of way. And this is how he wants them to live. Look at 34. A new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now, this is not new in regard to new. Didn't they not learn in the Old Testament that they were to love one another? Yes, it's there. It's the heart of the law. We know that the greatest commandment is to love God and to love others. But what Jesus is saying here is new. So what does he mean by new about loving one another as the people of God? So the word new here that John writes in the Greek means something fresh or something opposite of being outworn or worn out rather than something new, brand new or recent or different. It doesn't mean that this new commandment To love is something newly invented, but it is to be seen in a fresh way. Well, how is it to be seen in a fresh way? Let me give you two reasons or two ways this is to be seen in a fresh way. One, this was to be a command for the church. Moving forward, this is what the church was to be marked by, loving one another. So this was a new command for the church. Yes, the Old Testament commanded love. It was spoken to Israel. Now he's speaking to the church. He's saying, church, you are to love one another. Secondly, this, this is a command for followers and how they were to relate to one another within the church. So it's a command for the church, for the followers of Jesus, how they were to relate to one another. Let me give you some examples. There are 60, 59 to 60, depending on translations, one another's or each other's in the New Testament. Let me give you just some in the book of Romans. Romans 12.10 Love one another with brotherly affection. Listen to these words. Outdo one another in showing honor. Romans 12.16 Live in harmony with one another. Romans 13.8 Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves Another has fulfilled the law. Romans 14, 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide to put, to never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Romans 15, 5, last one. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accordance with with Christ Jesus. It was new, not in outworn. It was new in regard to church. After I leave, the Spirit's going to come. The church is going to be born. This is, this is a command for the church. This is the way that you are to relate to one another. You are to love one another. Now I want to give us three aspects of this. What does it look like to love one another? What does Jesus teach us here? Here's the first one. 
This is a command to love. Notice what it says. A new command, not a suggestion, not an idea, not groupthink. This is, this is my word, sovereign word, sacred word. I have a command for you. You love one another. So hours from the cross, Christ continuing to show His love for the apostles and for the world that He will go to the cross and lay His life down. By the way, if you notice there, a new command, I give you love one another. It is in the present tense. That means that you love one another today. And if we wake up tomorrow morning and we are alive, guess what we do among the church? We love one another. If Tuesday comes, we love one another. If Wednesday comes, we love one another. This is a command given to the church for the believers and how they relate to one another. We are not to be known for fighting. We are to be known by loving one another. We fight for right doctrine, right theology, and we stand there. And so sometimes there's disagreement there. But in regard to other stuff, we love one another. Look around in this room this morning. Over 100 people in this room this morning. There were, quite a, there were a, a number in the first service. Do we all see everything alike in, in life? No. There are some things we must see alike in regard to doctrine and theology. But we're not going to see other things. There are people in this building today who wore New Orleans Saints jerseys into this building today. So we're not going to agree on that. So there are things that we're going to see differently, simple things like that and other things. But I want you to note this. This is a, listen, a command it is a command that we love one another this is not a recommendation this is not a piece of advice for from jesus this is not something that he's saying just give some strong consideration to this you see love is not a concept or an idea but you know what love is it is expressed in deeds toward other people practical loving deeds to other people. And so often we make the mistake in regard to loving one another is I'm, I'm waiting till I feel something about that person and then I'll express my love. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, no, you love one another whether you feel it or not. If you are in the family of God, you love one another. This is not an option. This is a command. Now let me ask this question. Has God ever given us a command that we can't follow? No. We can follow every command that He's asked us to do in the power of the Spirit working in our lives. We can obey every command that we have been given to follow. And so, so this command, let's be honest, sometimes it's hard. Do you know any people that are hard to love? We all know people like that. They're hard to love. But guess what? So what? What are we to do? We love them. If they are in the family of God, it's not a disagreeable issue about right doctrine, then we are to love them and to bear with them. By the way, somebody's bearing with us, by the way. Not all of us are like easy to get along with all the time. No husbands and wives elbowing each other and stuff. Look, this command is important from the mouth of Christ telling us that we are to follow this. By the way, when we walk in step with the Spirit, if you'll remember Galatians 5.22, for the fruit of the Spirit is love. First one. So when we walk with God in obedience, the Spirit works love so we can love one another. So that's one aspect of, of this that Jesus says in the love for the family of God. We need to know that this is a command to love. I've been married now for 33 years. Rick and Helga were here in the first service. They're almost 55 years married together. Do you think that they've agreed for 55 years on every single issue? No. 
How do you make it 55 years of marriage? You know how you make it? You have to forgive each other along the way. You have to bear with one another when there's disagreements. You forgive one another. You're patient with one another. And marriage is this great example for us of this, of this aspect of love, that we, we love one another with our spouse, and there's never been a perfect spouse. Do you agree? Never been a perfect spouse. Every spouse is a little bit difficult at times to deal with. And yet, now we've been married. Well, my wife is, is, a, real, is a real good partner, um, but uh, y'all didn't laugh at that. But anyway, we've made it 33 years because along the way, there were moments when, to be honest, days we didn't talk. And then eventually you talk. And then eventually through the days you realize you can't continue to live this way. And you forgive and those moments don't continue to be that way. You begin to deal with things. You learn. You begin to deal with things. And we love one another. We love one another. We're committed. We're, we're commanded to love. I'm commanded this way. And we've lost this in this country. This understanding of what biblical love truly looks like. It is a command. It's not a feeling. Are feelings involved? Sure. We're humans. But it must go deeper than our feelings. We are commanded to love. And therefore, watch this, our supreme example and definition of love is who? Jesus. And so that's what he tells us. So he says, a new command I give you, love one another. Look at the last part of 34. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. So yes, as I said, love is a feeling, but it is much more. If love was only an emotional, oh, that's, I'm just so glad I'm in love. Remember in love, and I'm, it's so awesome, and it's great. If love was just a feeling, then what's the cross about? It's not gushy feelings. That is brutal. The Son of God bearing the sin of the world in His body. Did He feel yeah, he felt. But not these great love like we want to attribute to love. Is that love? Well, absolutely that's love. That he laid his life down for us. But love is much more than feelings. Love is expressed in actions. And Christ expressing in action his love for us. And I just want to say this this morning. I am, again, overwhelmed by grace this morning. I do not deserve salvation, but I have been given salvation through the sovereign work of Christ. And if you know Him today, that's happened in your life as well. You and I offered God nothing but rebellion because of our spiritual condition. And He loved in such a way that He came and He laid His life down for us. He is the supreme definition of love. Who did He die for? His enemies. He died for sinners. So the sacrificial work of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary is the new standard for the Christian in the church for what love looks like among believers. So let's look at the third one. It's a command to love. Jesus is the supreme definition of what love is. Thirdly, love is to be seen, not hidden. Look at 35. By this, this love that I'm talking to you about, everyone will know that you belong to me, you are my disciples, if you love one another. Church, this is a call to have more than nice thoughts that no one can see about other people. This is a call for outward expression. Love is to be seen in actions. We are not to be known for our fighting and divisions over things that do not matter. We are to love even when we see things of life differently. Are you with me? That means this. Just going to make a practical thing and don't attribute anything to me. If you claim to be one political party and somebody else claims to be another political party in their political parties, and you're both believers, you are to love one another. If I'm a masked person, 
and there's a masked person, you are to love one another. If I have this perspective about education, and I have this perspective about education, you can have that. Those believers are to love one another. If I have a perspective about this thing, and somebody else has a perspective about this thing, and it's not about God and, 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 and again, right doctrine and theology, we are to love one another. I just want to say this and remind us, I think we know this, we are not always going to see things the same. But the right things, we must see the same again. But we are to love one another. And of all the places in our culture today, I hope you agree with me, where love ought to be be so domineering and present ought to be in this room this morning. We should love one another. Again, sometimes, sometimes we're wrong. And sometimes we need to say, you know what, I was wrong about that and and I want to ask forgiveness to restore that relationship. But I want to remind us, there's, there's hundreds of things. There's hundreds of things that could divide us this morning, right? Hundreds of things. Most of them, each perspective is kind of right or right, whatever, the, whatever you might want to label it. But we must, in spite of those things, love one another. We must love one another. Again, we, we are loved by Christ. We were loved 2,000 years ago by Christ on the cross. Knowing that in the future all that we could offer was, I'm a sinner and I can just offer you a heart of stone. And this is love. Not that we love God, but that God loved us. And God demonstrates His love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So this this. This commandment is, is to, to be expressed in action that we love one another. And I want you to notice this, what he says here. Notice what it says. That everybody in, everybody's going to know that you belong to me, not when you raise your hands in, in a corporate setting and you lift your voices to worship me. People are going to know who you are because you go on mission trips. No, he says this. No, people are going to know who you are when you as the body of Christ, you love one another. And it expressed in the greatest practical way. So here's what Jesus, second thing he tells the 11 after Judas is gone. My glory is really, really important. And it's about to be expressed and the Father is going to get the great glory. And I also want you to know this. You, a new command I give you, you must love one another. Tertullian wrote in, toward the end of the second century, he wrote that the pagan heathen people used to look at Christians and believers and they would say, behold how these Christians love one another. Menicus Felix reports on the comment of another heathen called Cassalius. He said this about the Christians in the second century. They seem to love one another before they even meet one another and get to know one another. That's what the bond of the cross does. It unites us. They didn't like the Christians at all in the second century. They were martyred and killed, slandered lied about, ridiculed, opposed. They put them in jail and executed them. And you know what people in the second century said? Those people love each other. They love each other. So we must have a love for the family of God. Poor Peter has to always talk. And so Jesus is pouring out his heart, giving a great example. And he's like, wait, wait a minute, can I... Can I go back a few sentences? I, I, don't even, I don't know if Peter even heard the love stuff because his heart's broken. And so he says in 36, Lord, where, wait, where are you going? And Jesus said, listen, where I'm going, you can't follow now, but you will follow 
later. And I want to talk about this, though Peter's going to make a great mistake in a few hours. I want to talk about his heart here. Because I like his heart here. And I can identify with his heart. One of the great true marks of genuine faith is the longing and living in the awareness of Christ's presence. What's Peter saying? Lord, where you're going? Wait, 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 wait. Where are you going? You got to tell me. Because I don't want to live my life without you. I don't want you to be gone. What? What? Where are you going? I, I want to I go. No, Peter, you're not going to be able to go right now. And I want to just make this point. We ought to be marked by a longing to be near Jesus. That should mark our lives. And so here's Peter. He's like, Lord, he's, again, I don't, again, I don't know if he heard of the love stuff yet. Because he's thinking about what Jesus said. You're just going to see me a little bit longer. And where I'm going, you're not going to be able to go. And he's like, no, but Lord, where, where? Come on, tell me, where are you going? And we're going to get there next week. We will get to that place next week where he says to them, look, you know where I'm going. Because I am the way and the truth and the life. And nobody comes to the Father except through me. Here's what Peter's saying. I want to go where you go. And Jesus is like, well, you are, but just not yet. There's a weakness that can be present in our life as we begin to wind this thing down this morning. Peter's great issue is this, is he's willing to do, say, I'll do whatever it takes. I'm going with you. Whatever it takes, I'll, I'll, I'm willing to lay my life down. Peter's problem is this, is he's trusting in his own strength. Instead of trusting in what has been commanded and, and told him, no, trust me, believe in me. And so he thinks he has what it takes to pay the price for whatever is coming, but it didn't happen. Now I want to remind us of this. And I love this about Christ. Peter blows it. He has a rough night, by the way, this night. He's interrupting Jesus. Where are you going? Um, he's the one who motioned to John with his head. Hey, ask him who's going to betray. Um, he's going to go to the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus, and Jesus is going to say, hey, you guys, my closest ones of the 12, y'all come in here with me and stay awake and pray. And what do they do? They fall asleep. Three times. Jesus has to come back. They will come to arrest Jesus. What will Peter do? He takes off running with everybody else. And then he thinks, ah, I want to see what's kind of going on. He follows at a distance. And what does he do? He denies three times. This is a, this is, if you want to know why Peter is seen weeping in the streets of Jerusalem on this night, he's had a bitter night. Can I share great hope in this room this morning? Guess who the leader of the first church was? Peter. Guess who this great spokesman was on the day of Pentecost? Peter. You know what that communicates to us? God is a God of restoration. God restores us in our brokenness and in our bitter moments and restores us. And eventually, this longing that Peter has for Jesus, by the way, it will last a lifetime. He's not perfect. We see that in the book of Acts. We see that in other places where Paul had to confront Peter about some things. But he lived loving Jesus. So he's denied the Lord. He's fled from the Lord. He's fallen asleep on the Lord. The Lord is... Here's another mistake Peter made. He told them, go to Galilee and I'm going to meet you there. And So they're Galilee and they're kind of hanging around and he's like, like, like some of us are. I'm tired of hanging around. So he's like, hey, brothers, let's go fishing. So they get in the boat, and they go out fishing. Jesus shows up on the shore, if you remember. He says, brothers, have you caught anything? Nope. Throw your net out on the other side. Peter's had this happen with Jesus earlier in his life. John recognizes, if you remember the story, and says, that's the Lord. And Peter jumps out of the boat and goes to shore. And he's there, and Jesus asks him three times, do you love me? For each of, those, each of those denials, do you love me? Well, then you feed my sheep. Do you love me? Tend my sheep. Do you love me? 
take care of my people. Lord, you know this. And then Jesus will have this conversation. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, Peter, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and you walked wherever you wanted to go. But let me tell you what your life is going to be like when you're old. When you are old, you will stretch out your hands and somebody else is going to dress you and they're going to carry you to a place that you don't want to go. And John writes in his gospel in John 21 in parentheses, this Jesus said to him, telling Peter what kind of death Peter would glorify God. And after saying this to him, I want you to watch this. Peter, I know you love me and I've restored you. But I want to tell you this, tell you what's going to be like following me. At the end of your life, somebody else is going to come along and dress you and take you to a place that you don't want to go to. And tradition tells us that Peter was crucified upside down in Rome. And he gave his life and death as his Lord on the cross. And you know what, you know what Jesus says after he says, this is what's going to happen at the end of your life? You know what Jesus says? Follow me. Follow me. And Peter did. And if Peter could be here today, and he is here today in a sense because the scripture, he would say it's worth every moment. Every moment. I found the treasure of treasures. And I gave my life, I sold everything so that I could have this treasure. We ought to long for Jesus. Last thing is this. Look at 37 and 38. So Peter said, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life. And Jesus said, will you really lay your, down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. You see, if commitment, Peter's thinking to himself, if I could just show I've got enough commitment, then I'll show you, Jesus, that, that my commitment is unmatched. And so wherever you're going to go, I can go. I, I, I've got that kind of commitment with you. And he says he's willing to pay any kind of price, including his own life, to follow. But Peter didn't really understand the moment. And this is, this is important to hear. Listen. The one who is most confident that we will never fall sometimes becomes the most likely candidate to fall. How does this happen? Because Peter's confidence and our confidence is in ourselves. And when we trust in ourselves, we, can, we are weak. It is far better to be aware of the potential of falling than to be confident of our standing. There's wisdom there. Our hearts are capable of anything. So that's why we lean in to Christ. There's a great f- false teaching that's permeated the American church. And you hear it primarily with conference speakers and books. And it's this. You, this is the message, and some of the, sometimes the sentences are literally this. You are the answer to your own destiny. You have it inside of you. Believe in yourself. You're the hope of your own life. That is a mockery of that. We don't have it, folks. But He does. And when His work works in us, then He does things through us we are not the ones who determine our future and so if our confidence is in ourselves we are just going to end up leading to more emptiness because that's what peter found that's why he's weeping in the streets of jerusalem in the middle of the night it's empty when we lose ourselves and deny the lord See, Peter's issue on this night is trust in his own loyalty, not in Christ's loyalty, and not in the person of Christ. And I tell you, our loyalty and our confidence must remain steeped in deep humility in Christ and never pride in ourselves that we have it all together.
See, Peter believed that his strength was enough in himself that he could just pull it out of his pocket when he needed it and just kind of use it, but he didn't have it. Our only hope is Christ in us, the hope of glory. In just a few hours, they will scatter like bugs in the night when the light comes on. And we will read this about them in Matthew 26, 56. But all this took place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left and they fled. But Jesus' commitment to Peter and the other ten would remain in spite of their weaknesses from this night and their failure in Christ's great hour of need. So they will sleep and then flee at his great hour of need. Afterwards, he will express his faithful love to them by restoring them after the resurrection. And then they get the great privilege of being entrusted with the Great Commission and the starting of the church. You see, ultimately, biblical love is seen in the commitment in the highest good for other people. What's the highest good that we can give other people? Jesus. It's the best thing that we can give people. And our world today needs to see Christian love. It needs to see Christians loving the glory of God, walking in obedience, the fruit of the Spirit flowing out of a a Christ follower's life. And His loyalty and His power will continue to move in us. But it is good for the world that we love each other this morning. So I didn't do this in the first service. Not sure why I didn't, but it just popped into my head. So we're going to do it. I want you, if you're comfortable, I know the world's different. You just make, hug somebody today if they're okay hugging. And if they're not okay hugging, look them in the eyes, somebody you know today at this church, and tell them that you love them and tell them why. Whether that's in your family I would encourage you to step outside of your family a little bit and tell somebody here today why you love them. And I'll say this as we close. Christ followers will never serve one another if they don't love one another. It says there in John 13, He now showed them the full extent of His love. He loved them to the end. How did He do that? He washed their feet. He showed his love by serving them. Maybe this week you need to make a meal for somebody, whether they need it or not. I like Thai food. (laughs) Maybe you need to fill up somebody's gas tank. What could we become when our love is expressed beyond normal deeds? It goes beyond. You see, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Let's pray.